Traditional Irish band Grada are reforming and returning to tour Aotearoa in October. Very soon, a couple of three weeks. Two members of the band, Jerry Paul and Andrew Laking, are New Zealanders. According to Grada's Galway-based lead singer, Nicola Joyce, the energy creates moments of empathy in the crowd. And after Grada disbanded in 2011, Nicola Joyce uh, joined a new band, co-founded a new band called The While Aways, and she wrote a song called Toss the Bobbin, which inspired an invitation from the University of Galway to contribute a chapter to Ionba, the empathy book for Ireland. She's about to return to Aotearoa from Galway for a reunion tour of Grada, but she joins me now from Galway. Hi, Nicola. How's it going? Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me. It's uh, lovely to talk to you. Toss the bobbin. Tell me the story. The song is inspired. I'm coming to you live from Hetford in County Galway, which would be my hometown. And the song is inspired by the history of the women of my area here, the area where I grew up. And uh, until recently, we didn't realize that there were hundreds of them who were lace makers. This is a small rural town. And in the 1700s, a lace making industry was set up by the English landlord, uh, the wife of the English landlord, Mrs. St. George. And it was uh, set up really as an act of kindness, an act of empathy, um, throwing a lifeline to the women of the area uh, in times of extreme poverty and destitution, really. So she set up a lace making school. And for the following 200 years, that is how they survived. Lace making the world over is by the poor and for the rich. So they turned their hands to this really intricate form of bobbin lace making, which is still quite rare. And it would uh, end up being worn by Queen Victoria and all of these people far away. But it was just enough. They were paid only a pittance, but it was just enough to to get them by. And that song kind of tells the story of their solidarity between the women and how they got through. And did they did the woman, the 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 land lady, um, who set it up, did she facilitate the selling of their work? She would have to an extent. The history is still being uncovered, so details are sketchy, but she would have facilitated it to an extent. But uh, traveling merchants would have would have bought their lace. And actually, an interesting fact about it: we've heard a lot about the washing of hands in recent years. Um, and apparently, you know, they wouldn't get if the lace was at all dirty, they would get paid even less for it. So apparently, the the incidence of diseases that were prevalent elsewhere in rural Ireland, particularly during the famine where the incidence of those diseases was much less in this area, which they put down to the consistent washing of the hands by the lace makers. How interesting. Mm. So do you see examples of this lace around now or in museums or is it visible? There is only one surviving piece of it, and that is how the, the whole story 
was uncovered when this piece was found in an old house uh, only about 15 years ago. And they they began to research it and discovered that this was, in fact, uh, bob, bob and lace and, and the rest of the story unfolded. Have you seen it? I have seen it and I've held it in my hands. And it was it was initially given to my cousin actually because she she's a she's into crochet and she teaches crochet and somebody handed it to her and she said hang on a second that's not crochet. And would you did you know when you saw it is it distinctive how does it differentiate itself from other lace this bobbin lace? I'm definitely no lace expert so I don't know if I'm the person to answer that question but I did have a go at uh making it i was i was taught briefly and i can tell you it's extremely difficult and painstaking it's hours upon hours upon hours to produce uh, a couple of inches of it and the best examples are a lot of the best examples are actually buried underground because they would have been people were buried in their in their finest garments and so the, the, it was, you know, quite a sought after thing to have for the wealthy and also for for the clergy. Um, so the finest examples of it are in graveyards all around Europe, possibly. How extraordinary. And there were hundreds of women involved in this. There were. Um, and the men would have been involved in the growing of the flax as well, it turns out. But it was extraordinary to me that having grown up in Hetford in this area that I never knew of the existence of Hetford Lace at all. And my aunts and my grandmother, they they really didn't know about it either. It had all it had really fallen from public memory entirely and was just considered the insignificant work of poor women when it was in fact that very work that sustained them through famine and through real poverty and and what fed their families and how they survived. When you said the men would be involved in growing the flax, the flax, was the lace made of flax? Uh, so the flax would have been spun into linen thread, from what I understand, and from right. it the lace was made, yes. Ah. Somebody has texted to say, I adore bobbin lace making. The little bobbins make the most divine clicking noise. So musical. So musical, yes. That that uh, that in that inspired the song as well, um, as well as the sound of the the actual bobbins. They would also sing as they made the lace. So uh, that line, "Steady moving as I sing," is is about the the bobbins moving. But they would sing these songs, which were called lace tells, and none of them have survived in Ireland, but they have survived some in Wales and in Scotland, and they were almost like they sounded somewhat like children's nursery rhymes, very, very simple songs. But within the songs were the patterns. So there would be numbers embedded in the song and that those numbers uh, translated into a pattern. So the women were, were to be heard singing and the music of the bobbins as they made this lace. Aha. And in all the histories of Ireland, this is not really spoken of. Certainly not the lace from my area. Some other uh, areas like uh, Carrick Macross and Mount Melick, their history has survived a little better, but it wouldn't be what you would call celebrated, um, you know, and 
as is often the case with women's history, it, it you know disappears with the passage of time. So now we come to the empathy book for Ireland. Ayonba, is that how you say that word? Uh, unva. Oh Lord, I did a pronunciation. <laughs> I did a pronunciation check on the Google, even, and it never came up with that variety. Say it again for me. Unvo. Unvo. Unvo, which means but, empathy. Which means empathy, but don't worry about the pronunciation. There are many people in Ireland who can't manage it either, so don't worry. Unvo. <laughs> anyway, this came about um, the actor Killian Murphy and a professor called Pat Dolan um, put together as a consequence of the Irish-American partnership Unva, the Empathy Book for Ireland. And was it Pat Dolan who heard your song, Toss the Bobbin? It was. Pat is a lecturer at the University of Galway and he's also a big fan of the arts and of music and would have would have been at some of our gigs with the Wild Aways. And Pat is also the UNESCO Chair for Children and Youth. And this is a project that uh, came about between himself and Killian Murphy. Um, it's been kind of 10 years in the making. They've been working very closely on this project. And the book was put together as a fundraiser for a broader project, which is uh, empathy education in schools. And we just got word, actually, that it has now been made compulsory in schools in Ireland as of two weeks ago. Wow. Empathy. Uh, and empathy lessons. Pretty much empathy lessons. Um, it's going to be part of the SPHE uh, subject. So that's um, social, political and health education in Ireland. So every 15 year old now will will be receiving 200 hours over the year of empathy education. We're not the first country to do it. It already exists in parts of America and in Canada. And Pat has just come back um, working closely with people in the townships in South Africa where they want to implement it there. And also he's just uh, been to Auschwitz and there's going to be you know, a, re, a rethinking of um, the Holocaust education there. And they want to implement this empathy education as a part of that as well. So a lot of the thinking behind it or the way that Pat explained it to me when, when he invited me to contribute to the book was that empathy or the ability to empathise is not something that we can take for granted or take as a nat that it just comes naturally. And especially as our civic society has evolved, that we we no longer rely on each other as much as we used to. You know, he, he used the example of living in inner city Dublin where families lived very closely and without much means. And it really meant that you had to understand each other's circumstances and look out for each other and mind each other. And that that is not necessarily the way that we live so much anymore. And there's a lot of focus on self-care and well-being but that that is a very different thing to empathy. You know, self-care is all about the self, but empathy is all about the other. And while it's important to practice self-care and to educate about self-care, that in isolation, uh, it, that it, the argument is that it shouldn't be that in isolation, that there should be education on how to be 
an empathetic person in society. And it's not religious based, it's just humanity based. In your piece that you wrote for the book, you describe how the kind of music that you perform live can induce empathy. Can you explain that? Well, I think empathy in music, particularly in in song, is central to the whole experience. Um, I think it, it, it happens at every level. So, um, you know, if we take the example of a traditional song, we, in, in Groda, we, we would have always, uh, you know, researched traditional songs and there are thousands of gems there. You're always looking for the song that hasn't been sung and you give it new life. And uh, when you're searching for these songs, you're looking for something to, to click with you. And you're really are, you know, trying to get inside the song from an emotional point of view. And when you sing the song, which may have been written hundreds of years ago, you are stepping into somebody else's shoes in order for that song to click with you and in order for you to give a meaningful delivery of that song. You must empathise with the person who wrote it, all those people who sang it throughout those hundreds of years in order for it to survive. And it must have, you know, connected with the people who listened to it and with the people who continue to listen to it. And so there's, you know, empathy is central to all of that experience, I think. Also, I guess it must be something to do with music, having the opportunity to get under people's barriers. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that's that's the beauty of music and the the aim of it. A lot, a lot of times, is is to break barriers for sure. We have a song um, by Grada called John Riley, which I'm imagining you may well play on your tour here. Do you want to tell me a little bit about this song? Uh, so this song is. Uh, this one was written by Tim O'Brien, who we had the great pleasure of recording with in Nashville, and he produced our album. We um, we were lucky enough, really, to travel all over the world with Grada, and so looking forward to to reforming and doing that again um, in New Zealand. Uh, Tim wrote this song about a Galway man, and uh, John Riley came from Clifton in County Galway and emigrated to America and joined as a mercenary soldier, joined the US Army, but in battle uh, changed his mind and ended up swapping sides and forming uh, the San Patricio Battalion and fighting for the Mexican side. And this is the story of what happened, the the, the young boy's uh, idea of war, how quickly it changed. Lovely to talk to you. Look forward to seeing you back here. Nicola Joyce.